Heavenly Father, thank you for what we share. Thank you that we can pray the prayers of saints from hundreds of years ago, that we have a word that is living and active from even longer ago, that we can gather in your name in unity as one people, despite our many differences from different countries, different languages, different cultures, even the north of England. Thank you, Lord, that you knit us together in Christ because of your grace. And we pray that as we study your word this morning, you give us insight, understanding, obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a dense passage, isn't it? There's a lot in there. We're going to do our best to get a sense of what's going on. But um, I've had a sort of different theme each day, and, and the key question today is, is faith really enough? And if it is, then there's a sort of background question, a haunting question is, why do people lose their faith? What causes people to lose their way and to stop trusting? Um, well, today, um, one time only, I'm going to play you a U2 song. I've resisted <laughs> the whole week, and this is the only one. You don't have to cover your face in horror. Um, <laughs> Um, but this is one I'm pretty sure none of you will know, so that'll make it interesting. Um, but um, it's actually quite tragic and a disturbing song. Um, and I want you to listen carefully to the words, and they are deliberately using biblical imagery. Bono knows exactly what he's doing in this song, and that is what makes it so haunting. So it's a song called The First Time, and it was written in the 90s, and we'd like some volume. That's quite perplexing, and I don't know if you've never heard it before, I guess the first time you, you, you can't quite make sense of, well, he, he gets it, and then he throws away the key. It's clear what's being talked about by the third verse. Um, the first verse, I have a lover, well, uh, very often in imagery, um, you know, the spirit is described as female sometimes, and is a lover, and gives me colors, and teaches me to sing, and in fact, in a lot of songs that uh, Bono writes... Um, the idea of him being able to sing is, is very clearly a gift from God. And, um, but by the end, he knows what he's been offered, this glorious, this home, this mansion with many rooms that Jesus talks about in John's Gospel, and he throws away the key, and it's perplexing. Why would he do that? What's going on there? Uh, Bono's actually talked about this because this is yet another song that people, uh, you know, preachers often, uh, Christians, criticise you two and say, oh, of course, they've lost their faith. 
And that's what this is about. Well, this is what Bono said about it. He said, it is about losing your faith. I haven't lost my faith. I have a great deal of faith. But this song expresses a moment that a lot of people feel. And what he's trying to do is articulate how people can lose their faith when they have a sense of what they have. And it's deliberately perplexing. It doesn't really make sense. And yet it does happen. We know people. I can remember there was one person I was at university with who was very influential on me. I was a baby Christian. I'd been a, ba a Christian for only about six months before I went to university. He'd been a Christian most of his teens. He was very influential on me. There was something about him, his, his enthusiasm, his zeal. He was from a very different background from me, and that helped as well. I thought, yeah, here's a guy I really respect. And um, by the fourth year, he jacked the whole thing in. He's now a very successful aircraft engineer. Um, he jacked the whole thing in, and it was as if afterwards he would laugh again, but never smile. There was never a contentment about him. It was as if he knew what he'd given away, and yet it didn't make sense. Why do people lose their faith? It's an essential, if uncomfortable, question. And there is a st high statistical probability that some in this room will not be calling themselves Christian on their deathbed. It's a horrible thought, but it is a high probability and that is a source of pain to loved ones, it's confusion to their friends, and it's a source of gloating to outsiders. <laughs> Another one gone. But while we might be saddened, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. After all, wasn't it Jesus himself who uh, preached the parable <clears throat> of the seed and the soils in Mark 4? Some falls on the path, some on rocks, some on thorns, only some on good soil. And there are many reasons that Jesus gives. Satanic removal, hostile suffering, worldly distraction. It's all there. But I'm not sure that when Jesus tells that parable, it was meant to be a comprehensive list. I don't think he covers all the bases necessarily. I don't think that's the point. And sometimes there is great mystery about it. And indeed, any point in someone's life is always too early to tell. Which is why we pray, why we serve, why we sought, uh, support everyone indiscriminately, and why we try to understand objections and doubts with every fiber of our being. The little niggle, though, with the Galatians, and this is the, the, the really awkward problem, is that they didn't feel they'd lost their faith at all. They thought they had a lot of faith. In fact, they probably imagined that they had got keener, more zealous, more confident in their faith. That was part of the appeal of these false teachers. And that in its own, is its own lesson right there. Because Paul writes as if they have everything thrown away. In Bono's words, it's as if the Galatians had the key, they know it, and unwittingly threw the key away. And so he launches chapter 3 with sharp, sharp words now, while a doubting and confused person may need gentle words and an arm around the shoulder and a lot of love, the loving response to the falsely confident may need to be rather more robust and even shocking. And verse 1 of chapter 3 is nothing if not shocking. You foolish Galatians! You idiots! Who's bewitched you? Who's messing with your head? I mean, it's as if they've stopped using their minds and almost as if they're under some sort of occult influence. I mean, that's the influence. Who's bewitched you? 
After all, why would someone give up what we've seen as the good news of grace in favour of what we've seen as the bad news of legalism? It's a no-brainer. You've got the keys to the kingdom coming, and you've thrown them away. What are you doing? It's idiotic. It doesn't make sense. Well, Paul has to walk a tightrope from now on in. And the reason is that the circumcision party, the Judaizers, those who say you've got to adopt Jewish culture and the law, the problem is they have a strong case. The reason they have had such an influence is that their argument is not stupid, but makes a lot of sense. And that's what Paul has to unpick. And the first issue is, you know, the question of how do we know God? And as far as Paul is concerned, the answer is simple. It is by the Spirit, not by striving. How do we meet God? Uh, More specifically, how are we fit for God? How are we right for God? How are we safe in God's presence? Now, the reason the circumcision guys had a case was simple. The law was God's idea. There it is in in a nutshell. That is their case. The law is God's idea. He revealed it back at Mount Sinai. And as uh, Paul was at pains to point out, it is the same God who uniquely revealed the gospel to him on the Damascus Road. Same God. And he in turn, Paul in turn, revealed it to the Gentiles. This is a God who reveals, who speaks. He did it at Mount Sinai. He did it on the Damascus Road. He's even done it here in Bath. The same God. And, you know, he refers to his own preaching there in verse 1. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. It's not saying they went in some sort of time machine back to Golgotha. No, they were in Galatia, but Paul preached, and it was, it was real. Or as Rico sometimes says, you know, when opening Mark's Gospel on Christianity Explorer, as if Jesus walks off the pages of Scripture. Jesus walked off the pages of Paul's preaching in Galatia. And they saw him, and they heard him, and they believed. So think about it. God revealed the law to Israel. Jesus revealed God to Paul. Paul revealed Jesus to Galatia. So who does Paul think he is suddenly to sort of ditch the law bit just because he doesn't like it? I mean, it would be like me sort of suggesting that uh, the British £10 note is no longer legal tender. And I might suddenly decide myself not to use a £10 note ever again. And, you know, I could do that if I wanted to for whatever reason. But I don't have the authority to declare it null and void. The only people who can do that are the Queen and the Governor of the Bank of England, presumably, and someone else, I don't know. But I don't have the authority. It is legal tender in this country for £10 to equals £10, and there it is. End of story. The law is from God. It's legal tender. Well, Paul wants to make clear and reminding them of how it all began for both Paul and for them in their faith. How did it all begin? Well, the heart of this argument is quite simple. He says, remember that he himself didn't invent the gospel. We saw that in chapter 1. It was revealed to him, remember? He said, he made it very clear. I didn't uh, get it from any human source. I had it from God direct. And that he checked his gospel to the Gentiles with... Uh, the apostles in Jerusalem, we saw that yesterday, so it's all been endorsed, they accepted it, Titus did not need to be circumcised, fine. None of this is Paul's invention. It was always part of God's plan, and then he puts it very starkly in verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? 
And then again in verse 5, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? In other words, God was clearly at work. We can all agree on that. How did it happen? Was it because you were good enough? Was it because you did special things? You ticked the right boxes. You started obeying the, the sort of finer points of Leviticus. Is that how it happened? No, I thought not. It happened because you believed. Christ was portrayed to you as crucified and you believed. And God was at work and there were miracles. And, and people were converted. They were brought, brought from death to life because you believed. You had faith. Don't you remember that? You stupid Galatians. Or as an Aussie might put it, you foolish galahs. That's what we'll call them from now on, the galahs. They just don't have a clue. And actually, it's similar to Peter's argument in Acts after he had that vision of, you know, the food on the, on the um, sheet coming down and, and going to Cornelius' house and the Gentiles are getting converted. You remember what Peter said to those who were skeptical? He said, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life without them having to obey the law. Peter got it, even though he slipped up slightly, as we saw yesterday. But this time, Paul's appealing to their own memory. You know, it wasn't that long ago, presumably. I don't know, months, maybe a couple of years or so. Not that long. They would have remembered. How did it happen? Because you suddenly started behaving very sort of legally? No, it's because you believed. That's how they started. So put it like this. When God's Spirit came upon you, when he started working in your lives, what had you done to deserve it? Anything? Nothing? He just came, didn't he? In other words, Gentiles not needing to obey the law is nothing to do with Paul, but everything to do with God. But it's not just how it all begins, it's also how it all continues. You know, Paul is effectively saying, okay, well, look, we can all agree on the beginning. That's how it started. The next issue is, well, how have you got on since? How have you hung in there? And, um, you know, he's saying, why on earth would you change tack? I mean, that's how he started. You start, you know, if you're running a race, you don't suddenly decide halfway through the 400 meters, oh, I like that track a bit better, I'm moving. It's inconceivable that God would suddenly change the rules mid-game. So verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? Look, you started like this. Why are you carrying on like that? The problem here is what we saw on the first day is the issue of gnomism rather than legalism. Remember that. This is the issue. Uh, gnomists believe, well, we start by grace, but we carry on by keeping the law. We stay in and are... Um, you know, being included is dependent, is conditional on our obedience. That is nomism. So you start with God's grace, but after that you stick with him by keeping his commandments. And, and as I've said, it does seem to stand up to logical scrutiny. After all, isn't that precisely what, um, what God had said to the Israelites in the, in the law before they entered the land? Do you remember this? The end of Deuteronomy so it's like sort of Moses' last will and testament, you know, the whole of Deuteronomy. It's the sermons he preaches to the generation going into the land. 
He's barred, they go in. Do you remember what he said in Deuteronomy 28? He said, if you obey everything, you'll receive the blessings of the covenant. If you don't obey everything, you'll receive the curses promised in the covenant, ultimately leading to being vomited out of the land, which is what would lead to the exile. So you can see, in Deuteronomy, it does look as though it's a sort of gnomist thing rather than a legalist thing. You know, I guess many people reading Deuteronomy at the time or hearing it spoken would have said, yes, well, we were chosen, but now this is how we've got to live to stay in. That's what it looks like. And I guess uh, the guys coming to Galatia were saying something like that. It's a convincing argument because it was from God. But Paul is adamant that that is not how the new covenant functions. And the difference is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who makes the difference. He comes to live within every believer, whether Jewish or Gentile in origin. Peter said that, Paul said that. And when he moves in, he comes to stay. God is not a squatter, but a permanent resident. And this is just what Jeremiah promised would happen in the new covenant. It is this permanence that makes it a better one. Jeremiah 31, 33, 34. I will put my law, not on tablets this time, in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. A slate wiped clean, past, present, and future. Wiped clean. They will know me and I will know them. The Spirit comes to reside. How did that happen? He came by faith. How does he stay? Well, we keep trusting that he's there. Knowing God is by his Spirit is a gift. It's always been a gift and it'll continue to be a gift. Nothing stops it being a gift. It is always by grace. Now, my hunch is that most or many of us at All Souls are not especially tempted by legalism. I suspect most of us are not legalists, I would guess, because we've had grace drummed into us enough. I mean, if you are, then sort it out. (laughs) My guess is that most of us are gnomists. Yeah, we start by grace, and then we drift into a form of gnomism. Otherwise, we think... Well, you know, um, you know I, I, I haven't had any requests from circumcision, put it that way. So it's not kind of that kind of gnomism. And I, I don't, that's not one of the services I offer, thankfully. Um, <clears throat> I only do baptisms, weddings, and funerals. Um, but don't you find yourself becoming a little anxious and worried if, you know, you miss church one week or you didn't have a quiet time for a day or a month and... Uh, you mess things up really badly and you're an appalling witness at work and you're, you shout at your kids and they shout at you and, and you think, oh, I've blown it. It's game over. It's, I've just gone too far this time. I've blown it with God. I suspect Paul would have Something to say about that, don't you? You foolish Londoners. What are you thinking? Who's twisted and bewitched you? 
Now, of course, this is humbling. I can't just sort of make myself known by God. I, I can't just suddenly, you know, say, oh, he's my friend unilaterally. You know, I can't just suddenly decide, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge is my best friend forever. It's only by invitation. We've never met. I'm not sure we necessarily get along. I'm sure she's lovely, but, you know. <laughs> but once I'm God's friend, I'm a friend for life. I'm best friends forever. Or as that uh, Irish farmer sitting by the road said, he, he, I'm praying to God, yes, he's very fond of me. Uh, there are obligations, of course, and we're going to come to that, um, particularly um, the day after tomorrow. This is not an invitation for license. But that's not our issue here. Our issue is how we know God. I mess up, but I'm a friend nonetheless. So Paul's first argument for not following the circumcision party is this. Knowing God is God's gift. It's a gift at the start, and it's a gift as it continues. The fact that I know God today is still his gift. It's his grace. That's why it's safe. If it wasn't, it'd be game over. Now, the second and third arguments are a little bit more involved, and they both involve Abraham. So we've got to do a bit of nitty-gritty thinking. I hope you're ready for this. But it's all a question of understanding where Abraham fits in God's plans. But there's a wonderful story um, told by the great Douglas Adams, who died just a year or two ago, author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and other things. And um, there's a story that he, he told about... Um, Getting to Cambridge Railway Station in 1976, he was a bit early for his train, so he popped into the cafe to get a newspaper and coffee and some biscuits, and he sat down in the cafe and, you know, generally mind his own business and started reading the paper, you know how you do. And, and then, you know, he just noticed that there was this fairly sort of nondescript bloke sitting opposite on the same table, um, you know, in a suit, looking perfectly respectable. And then weirdly, very odd, this guy opposite just suddenly grabbed his um, packet of biscuits, opened it and took out a biscuit and ate it. Very odd. And Adams described how you know, he was rather shocked and, and how the thought crossed his mind. No, no, but those are my biscuits. <laughs> but because he's, he is English, he didn't quite know how to respond, so he just ignored it. <laughs> and he continued with the paper, and he actually had a biscuit himself. <laughs> he, he was dumbstruck when the stranger did exactly the same thing again, took another biscuit. And now he was caught because he was embarrassed he didn't say anything the first time, and so he didn't feel he could say anything the second time. So instead, he just took a biscuit himself <laughs> and munched away. And then the process continued for some minutes as they alternated taking biscuits out of this packet in silence. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's that sort of unique British form of hostility. You, you know, for those who are not British, this is one of the things you've got to deal with, is that British people can be very hostile without any expression on their face at all. Um, sorry about that. It's not my fault. It's just, just the way we are. But anyway, um, when the packet was finally empty, um, they looked at each other, and then the stranger gathered all his belongings and left to get his train in silence. A few moments later, Adam's train was announced, and he sort of got up and gathered all his stuff, and as he did so, he discovered his own packet of biscuits unopened. (Laughter) 
his interpretation of past events was suddenly very different. <laughs> it wasn't the stranger who was rude, it was himself. He was helping himself to somebody else's biscuits. But this is what he said in conclusion as he finished telling the story. He said, the thing that I particularly like about this is the sensation that somewhere in England, there's a guy wandering around for the last quarter century who's a perfectly ordinary guy who has exactly the same story, but he doesn't have the punchline. Probably deeply traumatized. You say, who is this? Who is this weird man? He probably saw him on telly a few years ago. He said, that's the man. <laughs> he took my biscuits. <laughs> anyway, uh, there is a sort of serious point to that, sort of. Um, and this really gets under the skin of religious types. You see, we're very quick to assume that others are the sinners because they do terrible things. And it doesn't even cross our minds that we might be at fault ourselves. I think that's probably why religious people don't like looking in the spiritual mirror very much. Or looking too closely at the lives of spiritual heroes. Abraham is a case in point. Uh, Abraham, incidentally, was not one of the nicest kids on the block. I think he was a bit of a dodgy geezer sometimes. After all, he pretended that his wife was his sister so that he wouldn't get bumped off by a lustful pharaoh. That's not very nice. But God was still up for being Abraham's friend. How do we inherit from Abraham? Well, here's the next question. It's by faith, not by fitness. One of the most significant verses in the whole Bible is quoted in verse 6. Just as the Spirit had come to the Galatians because they believed and not because they deserved, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's taken from Genesis 15, verse 6. And it comes after the repeat of the big covenant promises God made to Abraham. This is what God promised to Abraham. He will have a family as countless as the stars, even though he and his wife are far too old for children. And he trusts that. If God says that's what's going to happen, it is. And he's justified or credited with righteousness. It's exactly the same idea. Just as he trusted that God would give him a land, which is why he left the comforts of Ur, which was a bit of a hot place at the time. He left Ur to go to the promised land, which was a sort of bit of a poxy backwater, why else would he move halfway around the world? Well, one reason, he believed. God made promises, and he trusted. Now, of course, many people have misunderstandings about what faith is, as if it was a feeling or a disease that somehow you catch. You know, people say, I wish I had your faith. You know, as if, oh, well, I, you know, I just can't help it. I didn't, I didn't get a cold this week. I didn't get faith this week. But it gets demystified when we see it as its synonym. Trust. I wish I had your trust. Trust in what? The issue is, do you trust what God has said? And Abraham did. Now, Abraham was a Jewish hero. He was the father of the Jewish faith. More importantly, he was the father, literally, of the Jewish people. They were all descended from him, which is what makes Paul's argument so strong. God had promised in Genesis 12 
that's quoted in Galatians 3, verse 8, that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. All nations, not just the nation of Israel, all nations. And this is where it begins to hit the road for the Galatians. The question is, how would all nations be blessed? The Judaizers had an answer. They said the whole world will be blessed by the privilege of living like a Jew. That's the sort of racialist argument we thought about on the first morning. Not racist, but racialist. The idea that Jewish culture was superior to all others because God revealed it. And they said, what a privilege it is for you unclean Gentiles to be able to live like us. That's how the Judaizers thought that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. Whereas Paul is saying, no, Abraham is a blessing to all nations because he's the father of faith. He was the one who shows that what matters is trust. Now, the shock of Paul's argument is that Abraham had faith in God and he was justified, while in a way he was effectively himself a Gentile. I mean, the Jews didn't exist. Everybody was a Gentile then. They were all pagans, if you like. And, and Abraham, you know, he was from what, out there. So verse 9, those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see? So in a sense, a Gentile is in exactly the same boat before God as Abraham was when God revealed his promises. Because there weren't Jews. Everybody was Gentile, do you see? Now, I can almost hear the Judaizers sniggering at this. They probably thought, ah, oh, we've got Paul here. Because think about it. Abraham trusted God, fine. But didn't he also do various law things? After all, two chapters later, Genesis 17, what, do, uh, what happens? Abraham gets circumcised. Aha! Well, Paul has rather conveniently omitted that. Not very helpful for his argument. Abraham, the father of faith, gets circumcised. But that's to miss the big picture. You see, Paul is arguing for the role of the law in general, the whole package given through Moses. And the key is that little phrase in verse 10. Relying on works of the law. Those who rely on works of the law. And when you rely on works of the law, it is disastrous. It is throwing away the keys to the mansion. Even though it was a gift of God. And Paul uses a deliberately Old Testament law argument to back this up, to show that God has not changed midstream. And he uses four key verses in what trendy people again call a chiasm, a sort of A, B, B, A structure. Um, and the first is quoted from Deuteronomy 27. I'm not going into all the details here, but just to give you an idea. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Okay, You're cursed if you don't do the whole lot. Within the law, God has revealed the problem. It's all or nothing. Moses said that in Deuteronomy 27. It's all or nothing. He doesn't say most of the law. He doesn't say the bits you like or the bits you can handle or the bits that are easy. He says the whole thing. And Old Testament history proves you can't do it. You see, obedience to the law is not like, I don't know, you take a well-built brick house like that. Pretty sturdy. You know, when the big bad wolf comes and huffs and he puffs at it, it's still going to stand. And, you know, 
it's not as if, you know, you take one or two bricks out of it, the whole house isn't going to fall. I mean, that's how we think of the law very often, isn't it? It's this big sort of structure. It doesn't matter if I sort of pick one or two out and, and try to do most of it. No, actually, breaking one law is more like shattering a piece of glass. And the whole thing collapses. It's all or nothing. So, you know, apply that to the analogy of the, to the law. You know, we might be think, thinking we're doing a particularly good air, uh, in most of it, but obviously we have some weak areas, maybe in the sort of honesty department or the, the sexual purity area or the anger zone. Most of the time we're okay. But obedience to the law is not like that. It's not a house with strong foundations. It's a pane of glass. One infringement, it's shattered. Luckily, in the Old Testament, there is an alternative. Abraham is the precedent. And um, he believed and so was justified. The prophets understood that too. No one could be justified or righteousified or made right with God by keeping the law. So Habakkuk says the way to life, here we go, the way to life is by faith. The righteous will live by faith, not by being righteous, but by having faith. That's how they live. You see, this really is a matter of life and death. Of course, it's a different matter if you can pull off being perfect. That's fine. If you can do that, go ahead, be my guest. Uh, good luck to you. Uh, we'll be in awe. And that's the point of the Leviticus verse that comes next, Leviticus 18. The person who does these things will live by them. I mean, if you can do the whole lot, that's great. You'll live. But you see, this is what makes the gospel of grace by faith so good. There is a curse for rebellion, for the inability to keep the whole thing. That is symbolized by death in hanging from a tree. Although I, I've tried to work out why the new NIV calls it hanging from a pole. It's very odd. Um, I, I've sort of looked online to see if I could find out what translator's notes on that. I couldn't find any. Maybe you could find some, but I don't really understand why hanging from a pole, that sounds odd. Um, but hanging from a tree, um, you know, and uh, Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. But the point is, that is good news because what has Christ done by hanging from a tree? He's redeemed us. Verse 13, from the curse of the law by being a curse for us. He's our curse substitute. He did for us what we could never do. He took on himself what we deserved, the curse for not being able to keep the law, for the shattered glass. There really are two ways to live. Be perfect or trust. Well, actually, there's only one way to live and one way to die. Put another way, rely on works of the law and be cursed if you fail, because you're under curse. You already are. Rely on Christ's death to be the curse when we fail, and you'll live. 
So do you see why, going back to chapter 1, why, why Paul had those extreme words to say about these false teachers? Because they are removing the assurance that comes from grace. And so he says, let them be anathema. Let them be cursed because they're under a curse. If you do not shelter under the cross and the one who took the curse for you, you take it yourself and so you're cursed. So it's not Paul being rude. It's Paul stating a fact. It's an act of faith, which is a much better way of knowing God than trying to be fit enough for God. Faith, not fitness. And then thirdly, so we've seen that secondly, that the second argument is that faith is the only way to blessing as we could never earn it. But the third, basically these are sort of variations on the same theme, aren't they? They're not radically different, but they are just nailing the ideas down. So the third, um, simply, is promises, not performance. Um, you know, that is what matters, that God has promised. But that raises a big problem. Why on earth do we have the law at all? You know, if that's not the way to be saved, why have we been given the law? Well, the crux of the rest of the chapter is a bit easier to follow. It's all to do with precedence. Who came first, Abraham or Moses? Answer? Abraham. Obviously, by quite a margin. In fact, verse 17 says it's a matter of 430 years. That's quite a precedent. And so the Moses covenant is not meant to be a replacement of the Abraham covenant. It sort of fills in the gaps. It, it, It extends and deepens it. But it's not the end point, as Jeremiah has already shown us. And Paul's point is that Abraham was promised a great inheritance for his descendants. Verse 18. If the inheritance depends on the law, in other words, on people being good enough, it no longer depends on promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham, and presumably through him to us, through a promise. God promises In other words, God's rescue of the world was always going to be brought about by his initiative and by his love. And our problems are simply too ingrained for us to make any headway. But he promised it. So it'll happen. Christ took on himself the curse, which is always how it was meant to be. God knew in advance we weren't going to be able to keep the law. That, interestingly, is why within the law is the whole sacrificial system. Why was there a temple? Well, because God knew we couldn't keep the law. And the temple is a foreshadowing of the great sacrifice. It was all part of the plan. Don't be surprised. Nothing's new. It's always by faith. You know, what makes you think that um, you know, killing a sheep and taking it to an old building is going to make any difference to your sin? Well, you only do it because God told you to do it. You do it by faith. And ultimately, that is a picture for what is to come. But what about the rest of the law? Well, it's still based on a promise. But it's, it, to enforce the point about inheritance, Paul uses, well, what some commentators think is a bit of a sleight of hand, you know, sort of card trick um, magicians. It's all in the wrist, isn't it? It's sleight of hand. And it looks like Paul is doing that here. You know, he's getting all sort of pernickety about, did, you know, was, was it seeds or seed? You know, it looks a bit iffy, this argument, and people give Paul a hard time. And the interesting thing is, though, in Greek, as in English, the word seed can suggest your seed is your entire descendants or one. 
So it's ambiguous in both languages, unusually. Um, so, you know, you could say that my seed is my family or one of my children, or whatever it is. But Paul insists on taking the first. And he says that in verse 16, the seed is one in particular, and that is Christ. So as far as Paul is concerned here, in sort of salvation history, in the story of God's plan to save the world, there are two key players, Abraham and then Christ, who represent the two main covenants, old and new. Both are built on promises God has made, and the correct response to divine promises of his every time it's faith. Trust him. In fact, my favorite definition of Christian faith is this. I was taught it when I was a baby Christian. I've never forgotten it. I don't think it's ever been improved. Faith is simply this. Trusting God to keep his promises. It's not rocket science. It's not difficult. It's not a disease. It's not weird. It's very straightforward can you trust this God to keep his promises? That's all. That's the bottom line. You remember um, tiny old Zacchaeus? Remember Zacchaeus? In Luke 19, that miserable, miserly, tax-collecting Roman collaborator, nasty piece of work, not the sort of person you want to have round for a meal. What made his chosen profession really stick in the gullet was, yes, that he was Jewish, as his name suggests. Zacchaeus is a Jewish name. And by being a Roman tax collector, that's meant he'd spent rather a lot of time with Gentiles, probably in their homes, probably eating with them, doing all kinds of dodgy things. Not least, working for the imperial occupiers. But suddenly, you remember that moment, Jesus looks up and says, I'm coming to your house for supper tonight. I hope everything's ready. <laughs> Jesus shocks everybody, not least Zacchaeus, but everybody else as well. To him. You know, it's like it's choosing the worst person in the village. You remember what Jesus says about it in Luke 19? Today, salvation has come to this house presumably because Jesus has come to this house. And he says, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Isn't that weird? Zacchaeus was Jewish. But he becomes a son of Abraham. He is declared a son of Abraham. He is uh, clarified and, and um, proclaimed as a son of Abraham when Jesus comes. Even for a collaborator. incredible. Jesus is saying that a Jewish man, a Jewish sinner, has become a son of Abraham. This is his glorious grace. And if it can reach Zacchaeus, it can reach anybody. Not just bad Jews, but the sorts of people that Zacchaeus hung out with. Nasty Gentiles too. But again, the obvious question in verse 19, why was the law given at all then? If it was all about trusting God's promises, why was the law given? Well, in Galatians, Paul's response is simple. And he goes on like this. He says, It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies that more than one God, a party, God is one. But the point is, the law was given by God, had this intervening place between Abraham and Jesus. 
Now, it's not the only thing we need to say about the law and a Christian attitude to the law. All right, there are other places in the New Testament particularly that unravel it a bit more. So this is not the whole story, but in terms of salvation, it is. I sometimes think this is a little bit like plane travel. I don't know whether this will work. You may find it helpful, you may not. Um, but um, if, you, if you don't find it helpful, forget about it. But uh, if you like, when a plane flies into Heathrow, if you've ever flown into Heathrow, you know that you get stacked for hours. And you look out of the window, and you say, oh, that's the seventh time I've seen Big Ben. You know, oh, we're going to be here a while. And it's almost inevitable, because of the only two runways, there's almost inevitable there's a queue to land. And that's just the way it is at Heathrow. Now, when a, a plane arrives in London airspace, the air traffic controller will put the plane in what's called a, a, a holding stack. Now, you could say that, in a way, it has arrived from its far-flung destination. I don't know, New Delhi or... Anchorage or wherever it is, and it has now come, it is in London airspace. All right? It's here. It has reached its destination. But of course, the journey hasn't ended. The journey only truly ends when you're on the ground and you're collecting your bags and you're out of the airport at last. All right? Now, in a way, Abraham is a bit like arriving in London airspace or grace airspace. It's all grace. And the holding stack, the law is a bit like a holding stack to hold you in position before you finally land when Jesus comes. And you are, you're there, but you're not all there. All right? And once you've landed, you've reached the promised landing. Ha, ha, ha. I was quite pleased with that. Or to use the image uh, metaphor in verse 24, the law is like a guardian. Um, the Greek word is literally pedagogos, from which we get ped pedagogy, pedagogical and so on, education. A pedagogos was actually a household slave whose job was to look after the children. Sometimes they were highly educated and they were teachers themselves. So they might teach the child, you know, basic grammar and, and you know, Latin history or whatever it is. Um, but at the very least, they would, they would be there to, to walk the kids to school every day. And Paul is saying that the law is like a pedagogos, a tutor taking the, the kids to school. The whole purpose is to come to Jesus. The law is there to, to get us there. But you see, God promised us righteousness. It's not through the law, it's through faith. And in this instance, the purpose of the law is to show us how much we need to do that. Because as um, he quoted earlier, you know, um, you have to keep the whole law to live. And so here's the good news. Verse 24. The law was our guardian, our tutor, our pedagogos, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. We've been in the holding stack, and at last, when Christ has come, we've landed. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. There was a sense in which the law in the old covenant was conditional because it's about living in the land. But the new covenant, the spirit comes, the law is written on our hearts, our sins are forgiven, taken as far as the east is from the west, past, present and future. It is just as if I'd never sinned. I am safe. I am free. I am his. Do you believe that? Because that's all you need to do to be saved. In fact, you're not doing anything. You're just saying, yeah, Lord, I trust you to keep that promise. It's not difficult, is it? 
That's easy. Ah, but it's quite galling, isn't it? It's quite humbling. We're going to think a bit tomorrow about why people hate this. Because they do hate it. Paul was persecuted for it. But the amazing thing is that faith saves. It's true. So all I leave you with is, do you trust God to keep his promise? Amen.